I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a very windy morning here in the mountains of Utah. Quick reminder that Montego, my Glass Immortals novella, is officially out on May 23rd. You can pick up signed copies from my website, ebooks from your favorite retailer, and audiobooks from Audible and iTunes. For European readers, you can also get signed copies of all my novellas from The Broken Binding. Also for European readers, don't forget that I'll be in Piercon in Poznan, Poland, the weekend of June 16th. Now, on with the show. My guest this week is author Beth Cato. Beth is known for her Clockwork Dagger series and Blood of Earth trilogy, and is a widely published science fiction and fantasy poet and short story writer. Beth also runs a wonderful recipe blog called Bready or Not. She has a new swashbuckling fantasy novel out on June 1st called A Thousand Recipes for Revenge. Beth and I chat about her upcoming book, and we talk about food. Seriously, we spend a good 45 minutes talking about food, so if you're not prepared for this sudden culinary episode, then you can get right out of here because Beth and I love food. Beth is a cheese tourist, which is my new favorite thing. Enjoy my yummy conversation with Beth Cato. Beth, it is so good to see you. It's great to see you. It's been way too long since we've seen each other. Oh my gosh, probably at least four years, I want to say. Yeah, it was uh, 2017, probably 2018, maybe. I don't know. Oh my gosh, that long, huh? Yeah, so maybe probably the last, maybe Phoenix Comic Con even? Probably, yeah. Not sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope you're doing well. I am. It's, you know, it feels like life is throwing a lot at me right now, but I'm hanging in there and getting stuff done. And hey, I've got a book coming out. So that's always a good thing. That's always a good thing. Very exciting. So this is your new one. Um, and uh, and I'm going to... I'm going to warn the, the the listener real quick that we might talk about food quite a lot. <laughs> That's true. Very relevant. Because um, we are both food lovers. Uh, in fact, you, I think maybe the first time I ever met you was over a gigantic thing of fudge, I want to say, that you brought to a convention. Probably. Yeah, I'm known for bringing tubs of cookies and fudge and bars, brownies, blondies, you know, just whatever, because I, I like feeding people at cons and I can be very much a wallflower. And if I have cookies, I can at least say, Hey, you want a cookie? <laughs> <laughs> See, it works out. I think that's a fantastic way to get to know people. It really is. And even if they're like, Oh no, you know, I, I'm do gluten free. It's still, you know, we can still talk about food and cookies and it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. So, um, so your new book is, uh, it's, food based so it's a thousand recipes for revenge yes and uh so it sounds like you have a uh a food-based magic system i do yeah and i've had people already asking me about if there are a thousand recipes in the book (laughs) and no there are not literally a thousand recipes but there are a number of recipes including epigraphs that include 
magical spins on authentic French period recipes from the 16th and 17th century. So yeah, it's an entirely food-based magic system where uh, Epicuria is a magical ingredient that can be flora or fauna harvested throughout the world. And when processed by a chef, and that's chef with a capital C, they can pull on the blessing of the gods and endow magic. I, that is fantastic. I really love that. Um, people who have read my Powder Mage books know that uh, one of the, the kind of central side characters is a god who uses his magic through food. Um, and so I, I totally like a gel. <laughs> it's so it's it's like a fun thing to play with, um, especially considering kind of the uh, kind of the the tendency of epic fantasy to have like feast scenes and yes. people will, you know, have conversations over meals and stuff like that. So it really it works really well. It does. And it I mean, there's so many ways you can take it and, and make it fresh and new and twisted around and. In my book, I don't even go into so many of the feast scenes. It's really about kind of the intimacy and the connections through food, whether that's magical or mundane, and the importance of it, and kind of using the emotional and magical together in a way. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I uh, I think we actually mentioned this on a recent episode, I think, but one of the very few kind of celebrity deaths that hit me hard as an adult was Anthony Bourdain. Oh yeah, because of that was his approach to kind of to making TV, obviously, because that's what he did for a living, but to cooking and to talking to humans that he had never met before. And, and I really loved that. I love that kind of like the, the intimacy and the, um, the kind of emotional connection yeah. with other people that he really strove for. So I, I love that. Yeah. He really had that connection with a lot of people and just food is, so important because it's not just sustenance it's culture it's memory it's family it's you know it's whatever your faith is i mean for me it's christmas i think of traditional christmas recipes how much that means to me in that connection and then it's fun writing it because you get to play with those memories and gives you an excuse to try new stuff too yeah so you know especially for me i love cheese and it's like oh good now i have an excuse to buy more french cheese okay you know let's go for it <laughs> yeah, you're like a cheese hunter, aren't you? <laughs> I am. I look at it like Pokemon, you know, got to try and try them all if I can. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, as long as it's not a a hot, spicy cheese or truffle cheeses, I don't like those. But otherwise, I try and give pretty much everything at least a try. And I have a document I call the Cheese Log where I track I've tracked everything I've tried since 2015. Yeah. And it's now uh, 180,000 words. Oh, my goodness. Do you know how many cheeses that you've tried? I do not because of how I initially started formatting it. I need, when I have time, to go back through and actually number them. A lot of those that word count is like the maker's descriptions of cheeses or, you know, maybe suggested accompaniments. So it's probably two-thirds of their descriptions and maybe one-third of my data and my reaction. But yeah. it's a... It's now a document that wants to give my Dropbox a little heart attack every time I open it, especially if I'm on my phone checking when I'm standing at the cheese counter, you know? <laughs> right. Have I tried this before? Yep. It's nice because I just bring up the document and I do a quick search and verify, oh, yep, you know, I need it or I don't need it or, oh, yeah, I tried this in 2017. Okay, you know, I can give it a pass and try something else new. I, I try to be more adventurous with cheese these days, uh, but I still like, I definitely have that like, Midwestern childhood picky eater, like I eat cheddar and mozzarella kind of yeah. thing going on. 
but I, I definitely try to like, I've been trying to branch out more, but it's a struggle sometimes. Well, the cool thing is even with cheddar, even if someone just likes cheddar, once you get into cheese and really see what's out there, my goodness, you have, you know, hundreds of kinds of cheddar that you can try. It's yeah. amazing. And, you know, and then depending on where you are in the U.S. or, you know, abroad, you'll have a lot more available than what, say, I might have living near Phoenix. You know, it's much more limited here, but it's better now than it used to be for sure. When I was a kid, uh, my mom used to take me out maybe once every two months or so. Um, so I lived uh, outside of Cleveland and she would oh, okay. we would drive out about 45 minutes kind of near the border with Pennsylvania uh, to this cheese factory. There was an Amish cheese factory. Oh, that sounds good. And so the cheeses were not adventurous, mm-hmm. but they were incredibly high quality. Yeah. And that's what we would always eat. You know, like we would have, <laughs> she would have like a, like a packet of American cheese for, I don't even remember what for picnics or whatever, mm-hmm. but then all the rest of the cheese in the fridge was like this really good Amish cheese. And, uh, and we'd get like the squeaky cheese and oh, yeah. the, uh, the meat sticks that they made and all that stuff. Like, that's like a really a really like important childhood memory for me. Well, there you go. And that just draws back into what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And see, yeah. for me, it's like whenever I travel, I'm all about cheese tourism. I, I, I yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm dead serious. I cheese tourism. It is a thing you can actually go on. There are places like cheese journeys online where you can do trips to Switzerland or England and do cheese focused tours often with cheese professionals. But for me, it's much cheaper, much, you know, just me Googling and researching to bits. And like in 2019, we, went to uh, England and Scotland for the very first time. Don't know when I'll get back, but I want to. And I arranged the whole trip around being able to take a day trip from York into uh, Winsleydale to the Winsleydale Creamery so that we could visit there and I could have Winsleydale cheese, eat at the Winsleydale Creamery's restaurant, be there in the Dales. And so that that was the foundation of the whole trip. <laughs> every, every time I see Winsleydale at the, uh, at the little cheese counter in my grocery store, I always have the uh, Wallace and Gromit voice in my head. <laughs> so many people do, yeah. It's either that or they think of Monty Python and the cheese shop skit. Right, right, yeah. Mr. Winsleydale on, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that. I um, When I went to Paris last summer, I was hanging out with my, uh, my publisher, and there was a, a moment at which he was trying to get me to try some incredibly stinky cheese. Well, at the moment I had COVID and didn't know it yet. Mm. Uh, this was right before my first COVID experience. And so I was very much like, uh, I still have jet lag. I'm going to beg off of this. Yeah. And, and he goes, uh, and, and he asked me what kind of cheese I liked at home. And I was like, oh, you know, like I like cheddar and mozzarella and provolone. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> and very straight faced. He just nodded sagely and went, ah, children's cheeses. <laughs> Oh, oh, that's a burn. <laughs> but it was it was just so funny the way he just he was very nice about it. Yeah. But it was like it was just you know a bit condescending but a bit playful at the same yes, time. Yes. <laughs> but uh yeah, you know, it's it is fun cuz food does it does connect people, you know? Like you were saying before, like you know, people have childhood memories associated with food. Mm-hmm. Um and sometimes it's good food and sometimes it's bad food. Yeah. You know, like like the garbage that their parents had them eat because they were busy, you know, or they just couldn't afford to get better food, you know, like they're trying to make do. And, you know, people think back on those foods and it's always like sometimes it's dread and sometimes it's comfort, you know, like like yeah. my dad to this day, uh, he will not eat spaghetti 
which is the weirdest thing in the world because I love pasta. But his mom made him eat kind of crappy spaghetti in the 50s. And now he just... To this day, just, no, I don't want anything to do with that. Yeah. My husband's that way about eggs. He was forced to eat eggs for breakfast as a kid. He cannot, he, he doesn't want to have anything to do with them now. He'll have them if they're mixed in like, in cookies. He can tolerate them, you know, as a binding ingredient because you don't taste the egg or see the egg texture. But yeah, it's the same kind of thing. He has an aversion to it since then. Yeah, it, it definitely affects your kind of memory and your your the way that you look at the world and stuff too. You know, it's... Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because you can get people that, you know, like how people are raised, you know, are they raised on TV dinners? You know, if it's just something you scarf down, are you raised with family dinner? Like, cause family dinner was a big thing for me growing up, yeah. you know, almost every night, you know, everybody gathered around the table at that time and you ate and that's just how it is. Uh, and you know, like, like, I guess I don't have kids, but like, you know, my wife and I sometimes we'll do a kind of a formal quote unquote dinner, but yeah. you know, a lot of times we just, eat whatever we're doing, you know, if, yeah. you know, oh, let's reheat whatever and we'll eat at the counter and then go about our evenings kind of thing. Yeah. And that's that way in my household a lot too, because my husband with his work shifts, it's, you know, we tend to fend for ourselves and maybe once a week we'll do a, a meal that we make sure that we do together. And that makes it, it really, it makes it extra special because we don't take it for granted. You know, we can kind of plan for it and, you know, do steak a month, once a month, something like that. And it, it does make it special. Yeah. So, so how did you, where did you kind of find your love of baking and cooking? Really good. I always had a very keen interest in food and trying food when I was, I remember being like four or five years old and I told my mom whenever she was cooking, I was her official taster, whatever she was making, I would have the first bite and I would tell her, Oh, it needs more pepper, more salt, things like that. Uh, my grandpa uh, loved cooking passionately. And he loved trying new recipes and, you know, trying to make his own sauerkraut at home or trying to make, he served in uh, China during World War II and he loved, you know, and he was in India too. And he loved trying to recreate some of those recipes, which was very hard in Central California uh, going through like the 80s when I knew him and, you know, was trying to cook with him. But he always had this passion for food and he would send me and my grandma off to the grocery store on these wild goose chases asking after these spices and the people would look at us like, are you, you know, what are you talking about? You know, I've never even heard of that spice. And so it was really kind of in my family and probably genetic is just, you know, this interest in food. And just, I always had a keen interest in trying things. Didn't mean I have to like it or have it again, but I just like trying it. It's like, even these days, my husband enjoys beer and I don't like beer, but I'll have a sip of what he's having just because I kind of, it's like I file it in my head. Like, okay, this is a stout. Yeah. The texture, the, you know, the foamy. Okay. You know, and I, to me, I enjoy that kind of sensory experience around food. And I realized when I was diagnosed with autism about a year and a half ago in my forties, she brought it up. I'd never thought, thought of it that way before, but so many people with autism, it's a sensory experience. And, you know, an over-sensory reaction is pretty common. Like my son diagnosed as a kid, trouble with crowds and noises, things like that. For me, my sensory skill in a positive way was food and experiencing the world through food. So when once I was told that in my diagnosis, a lot of things suddenly made sense. Like, oh, okay, so th- this is why I'm a foodie. This is why I just enjoy the experience of tasting things and traveling places, trying things. It's all part of that. It's just part of how my brain works. Yeah. That's really fascinating. I, um, I, I had a almost kind of the opposite when I was a kid, uh, that I, I was always very afraid of trying new things. Mm. Um, like I had kind of like a stable of what I knew I liked and anything outside of that freaked me out. 
like to the point where I would get in fights with my parents, you know, mm. at the dinner table, sometimes out, you know, um, I just, I was genuinely terrified of putting something in my mouth that I didn't like, you know, like it just, the idea, I don't even know if I even had the kind of consciousness to even phrase it that well. Yeah. I just, something about food that I didn't know, like was scary to me, um, which is really strange because I, I have over the, it's been about probably about the last four years or so that I have genuinely been trying to like not be a picky eater of anymore. And I'm finding that I like way more than I ever thought I did. Mm. Um, like that, that fear is no longer there. Like it kind of lurks under the surface and I'll still like, like when I was in Paris with the cheese, <laughs> you know, like I'll still kind of demure at times, yeah. but I have found like, man, I eat so much Mexican food these days. It's like four out of seven dinners a week is something Mexican food. And five years ago, I would not have even touched hmm. Chipotle, which is obviously fake Mexican, but like <laughs> I wouldn't have even gone that far, yeah. but like, and the same with curries and things like that. I've like really discovered, Oh, I actually like Thai food. I like all these different things that as a kid, even as a young adult, I, something about trying something new always freaked me out. And I don't know why I I'm, I'm not entirely sure. You know, brains are weird like that. Uh, I've learned a lot through helping my son because he's autistic and he was diagnosed very early and for gosh, a long time now he has been in feeding therapy every week. And I've learned so much through being there in his sessions and helping him And it. For him, it was a case where his brain literally didn't process things as food. And it's like, or, or is worse, something more like feces, you know, it's literally like something that is completely repulsive. And then you think once you realize that that's how his brain and body are processing it, it makes a whole lot more sense. It's like, oh yeah, if you're trying to get me to eat something and I see it as a pile of poo on a plate, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to want to eat that. And so many foods were that way to him. Yeah. Just, just inedible, basically. In, in, inedible and repulsive. I mean, I remember when he was like two, he touched a glazed donut and threw up just touching it. Oh my goodness. That's how sensitive he was. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. So his diet was very limited for a long time and he didn't eat very much. And it's really, and he's realized now he's enjoying trying things. He's, he's never going to be an eat everything kind of guy. He's now 18, but he now enjoys the experience of food and he can try things and he doesn't have that reaction, but it's taken many years of therapy and guidance to get him to that point. But now he really enjoys food a whole lot more. Is is that difficult as a parent who d is a foodie, who oh, loves yeah. food? Like it, it just, I, I got to imagine, because I yeah. like anybody trying to connect with another person over something they love and that being rejected is always difficult. And it's even harder for a parent relationship. Absolutely. It, well, it was very hard on me, uh, especially when he was very young because I was so desperate to try things. And there was so much bad advice out there. I mean, there are the people out there who say, well, just don't, you know, he'll eat when he's hungry, just starve him. And I'm like, no, that's, that's child abuse. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And the thing is, no matter how hungry he was, it wasn't going to work anyway, because he literally could not see it as food. And oh, it things like that make me so upset when I think of them now, because I had so much advice along those lines. And it, it makes me angry. Oh, but yeah, it was something we had to work through. And I just basically I had to be resilient and keep trying and stop trying to take it as personally. Because, you, know, you know, that's the thing. I love to bake. I love feeding people. I love seeing people enjoy what I make them. 
And for him, it was like, you know, okay, I'll find the few things that you like and we'll lean on that. I learned that he enjoyed the homemade bread that I would do. So it's like, okay. So every week from the time he was in kindergarten, I've made sandwich bread for him. And that was a way that I could still do something and feel like I was feeding him and taking care of him. And yeah, I can't do elaborate meals and things like that for him, but we found things that worked. And that's, I mean, that's accommodations, that's modifications, and that's really learning to speak with him at his level and not trying to force him to be something or do something that he can't do. Yeah. And that that's tough. Like that's, yeah. that's tough trying to work through kind of the, the personal psychology of that. I would yeah. say. Yeah, it really was, but it was worth the effort. And we found, I mean, I learned he liked brownies. So for his birthday, for a whole lot of years, he had brownies for his birthday. Uh, this yeah. past birthday when he turned 18 was the first one where he got to have a legit slice of cake for his birthday, went out and bought it. <laughs> Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. I was thinking about what you were saying in terms of kind of when you were younger and trying to find kind of exotic spices, things mm-hmm. that are are different that you're not going to find in normal stores. Yeah. And I was thinking about that in terms of like, I, I kind of, because I, I kind of wonder what it was like to really try to cook in kind of a time before, like, like in my brain, my adulthood, the world has been fairly global mm-hmm. and you can get things. Even if you can't find it at the store nearby, you can order it. Absolutely. You couldn't do that even probably what, 20 years ago? No, no, definitely not. I mean, then that's one of the fun things about reading period cookbooks is, I mean, when you come back to the realization of, you know, using the whole animal mm. for cooking and nothing going to waste and that even including, you know, the hooves, you know, yeah, you boil them down, use, you know, make use that for your gelatin, you know, things like that. And every part of the body, you would know something that could be used even and even things growing in the garden. You would use the roots, the stalks, the flowers, everything, nothing would go to waste. Yeah. It, and it's, uh, it, well, it's a lot also a lot different experience when you're um when it's like food that you're making from not just like the store mm-hmm. but like from your farm or yeah. even your tiny homestead it doesn't even like it used to be that even people with little tiny plots of land would always have a garden and uh, would always have some herbs yeah. you know stuff that you'd throw into the pot um I, th- and that's that's an experience i guess i I experienced it in a very small way when I was a kid because we always had a massive garden that I hated because I had to weed it. <laughs> um, and my mom did a lot of fresh fruit and uh, fresh uh, vegetables and we would can and freeze a lot of stuff ourselves. Okay. Um, but but that is a totally different experience when you're kind of, especially when it comes to meat and you know butchering and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah, there's a different intimacy and appreciation for what goes into it. And flavor wise, you can tell a difference uh, big time over, you know, if something from a farm that's local that is using maybe a heritage chicken 
versus, you know, a Foster Farms chicken from the grocery store. Wow, is there a difference in the meat and the quality of it? It's like, yeah, you don't have the huge chicken breasts like you would on the genetically modified version from the grocery store, but the flavor is so much deeper and the texture is different too. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's funny because I, I never appreciated that when I was young and when we did have a big garden and, and I talk to my wife sometimes about this because she mm. grew up on canned everything mm. from the store. And I did a lot. So, too. <laughs> honestly, canned vegetables revolt me. And, and it's, and it's weird because, you know, I was, I've never have been a vegetable person. I've never like, I mean, I'm a very round boy. I'll, I'll <laughs> I love my sweets. I love my meats and things like that. But I didn't even realize until I was fed some like canned vegetables and things like that, that I had grown up really quite good with like homegrown stuff. And it was, and my wife never had that experience. And so we, she'll say, oh, I don't want fruit. And I'll be like, but this is an amazing mango or an amazing strawberry, you know, like, and I'll get her to try it and be like, oh, wow, that's really good. That's like candy. And I'll be like, that's what fruit's supposed to taste like. And she's like, oh, not, not, not the weird sugary stuff that I grew up with. Yeah. I grew up with a lot of the canned stuff too, because I, you know, I grew up fairly poor and we did have a small garden and grew some things off and on, but it was a lot of canned food, a lot of frozen dinners, uh, you know, your your pasta from the store. Uh, my mom used to do a, a spam rice that I didn't even like as a kid. <laughs> you know, just, you know, we, we made do because we didn't have much money and, you know, had to make food, had a lot of cereal for breakfast, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and very little in the way of fresh vegetables. And I've tried to expand my horizons as an adult. And, you know, I now air fry a lot of vegetables and that makes things so tasty. I, I grilled some asparagus last night. Mm. And honestly, like, like, like I was saying five years ago, I would not have even eaten asparagus. Yeah. Like it would not have even gotten on the plate. And I just salt, pepper, olive oil, a little yeah. bit of lemon sprinkled on top, thrown on the grill. And honestly, it was delicious. Yeah. Like I had that with a chicken breast and it was so dang good. That sounds really good. But you know, I think we have more diverse ways to prepare food now. I mean, I remember there's, I've seen online articles too about Brussels sprouts and how pretty much it's a generational thing. Like I know the time I had them as a kid, they were boiled and they were nasty. I, oh, I thought they were horrible, but you roast them or you air fry them. And apparently it's also a different variety that's available in stores now than was available you know, 30 years ago, but they're really good if you know how to cook them just right. Oh yeah. No, uh, uh, like a maple bacon Brussels sprout yes. is one of the best things you will ever eat. Yeah. Yeah, I have a recipe for that on my uh, Bready or Not blog too. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Bready or Not a little bit. <laughs> I I uh, I love it. It's so funny because I was getting getting ready for us to chat, and so I was looking at your website and <laughs> immediately printed off the first recipe on there. Okay. <laughs> and what was it here? Oh, like, what was that? That was the um the chicken and rice soup that you posted. That. Oh yeah. Yep. Sounds incredible. Yeah, that's a good one, and that's a recipe that I've been tweaking for gosh ten years now to get it just right for. For our tastes. But yeah, I have a food blog called Bready or Not. I'm all about the puns. And <laughs> I started it back on my live journal, uh, gosh, 2012 thereabouts. And then when I grabbed my domain name of bethcato.com in 2014, I moved it over there. And every single week, every Wednesday morning, I have a brand new recipe. And a lot of them do tend toward the sweet. Uh, a lot of cookies, a lot of bars, uh, bunt cakes, things like that. But there's some crockpot recipes in there too. And um, 
things like, you know, bacon, bacon crack, which is like chocolate covered bacon with that's candied and, you know, just all kinds of sweets and all kinds of fun stuff. And then, you know, stuff like Brussels sprouts in there just to throw people off. <laughs> I, um, I, I absolutely love baking and cooking, but I have made myself stop baking, especially because I just eat all of it. Mm. Like if I make a treat, if I make something tasty, like I said before, it's just me and my wife. Like there's not a lot of competition in the house. I will devour whatever it is that I made over the course of the next you know, 48 hours. And that is why I am all about distributing the calorie load because I used to have that same issue many years and uh, my husband's coworkers now take the brunt of it. So pretty much probably 95% of the stuff I bake goes to his work and they know my containers. They know what they look like. It's a red loaded gladware and they know those are the Kato goodies. That's what they're called. And <laughs> so they get the majority of the stuff. And then because it, it is typically just me and my husband who eat the goodies here at home, uh, I've learned the value of freezing things to portion mm. things out that a lot of bunt cakes, even brownies, cookies, uh, lots of varieties of apple cake, uh, slice them up when they're fresh, freeze it. And then you can portion it out. And that's, I think that attitude has helped us a lot. That That is good. I See, I, I wouldn't mind getting back into baking if I kind of had a little bit better. Like, I, I rarely leave the house. Like, I don't have coworkers or, you know. That's me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just, I can't, I don't have anybody to distribute it to. In fact, the other day, uh, I was, uh, I made a, uh, I made a, I, I smoked a pork shoulder. Oh, nice. And uh, it's so good. But like, after three days of eating pork, you know, you kind of get to the point where you're like, if I eat more of this, I will die. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah. and so, of course, you know, I, I divvied up, I, f- I freeze a ton of it. I like doing these little um, two ounce things of uh, frozen smoked meat because then yep. those that's perfect for uh, for nachos. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, and I just I love doing that. But I also had so much that I ended up uh, I ended up at a game night with with friend of the show, Dan Wells. And, and I ended up taking like three pounds of pork to his house. Wow. How much was the original cut? Gosh, it was huge. I mean, I'm <laughs> it, it huge. I don't I actually, that, it must've been a maybe 16, 18 pounds or something like that. Oh, and you know, wow. that is it'll a lot. cook down a lot. Yeah, sure. But that's still um, a lot of meat. <laughs> it was a lot of meat. Uh, but man, no, I, and I, I have that problem all the time is that I, I like to cook. I love to cook big, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I'm kind of in my element when I'm like hosting Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, and that comes from my childhood, you know, growing up as the youngest of six and I would help my mom with making cookies and stuff like that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it is, it is kind of like you, go, <laughs> I, I struggle with portion control. And I think a lot of people do. I know I have. Yeah. No, and it's tough. You know, like, like food is just like. It's one of those pleasures that you don't really, you don't have, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of shame and judgment around it. Obviously there's lots of body kind of issues with eating and stuff like that. And it can cause a lot of problems, but like, but like it doesn't have a taboo around it generally. You know, there's every time I say something like this, it's immediately in my brain, something sparks up, but like, yeah, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's an easy thing to really like and to overindulge in. Yes. Um, and, uh, I mean, I definitely struggle. Well, I know years ago, I enjoyed it when you brought honey. Oh man. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, there, I got in my head at one point that I was going to start taking like you did with, you know, doing fudge and stuff is that I was going to start taking honey, uh, with me. And I think I did it 
like one convention where I brought a bunch of little bottles, like yeah, the little little bears, yeah, little tiny bears, and I handed them out to a bunch of my friends. Um, I don't know why I stopped doing that. I think I think my my beehives have struggled since I I moved, uh, which was about seven years ago. Wow, it's been that uh, long. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, I moved and I I I tried twice to get my hives up and going here in Utah. And I think I had one good harvest and then I had like two really struggling summers and now all of my stuff's empty. I haven't done it for a few years now, mm, That's um, sad. but it was, it was fun, you know, like, yeah. like, like we were talking about, like, uh, in terms of like, you know, richness of flavor and stuff like that, um, homegrown honey, no joke. Like you can taste that difference in it. Oh yeah. Um, you know, like. Oh, it just, it's got like a, a depth of flavor to it that you don't get from the stuff you buy at the store. Well, it's that terroir, you know, that goes back to, you know, the, bringing in the, the inherent flavors of the place where the, the food originates. It's legit. I've seen some people online try and laugh it off like, oh no, you know, cheese is cheese or butter is butter. It's like, no, 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 no. If you're saying that you haven't really tried, you know, try it from different places or tried it when it's fresh. Terroir is very much a very real thing. Well, there's a, it's, it's this, uh, that is actually a really fascinating concept because it like, because you're going to get like a location mm -hmm. can have an effect like that, that like seeps in on a really subtle level. Absolutely. You know, especially, you know, like growing food and stuff. It, I mean, you can see this with, uh, with problems where, you know, like a factory leaches chemicals into the ground near a farm and then the food is spoiled yeah. or the food just tastes weird or makes people sick. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, but you can have that on a, on a, um, on a very subtle kind of like local level of just the food tastes a certain way because of what's in the environment. Yeah. My book goes into that too, with, you know, my character Ada being an empathetic chef, she being just near food, she can know where it's from. And if she's been there and experienced it, she knows the point of origin and why it tastes as it does because of the stream it's nearby or, Oh, that butter, you can taste a bit of the sea to it because it's, you know, it was, it originated near the ocean, things like that. And she's able to pick up on that kind of thing because she's, you know, part of her tour in her training days, she was taught to notice that kind of inherent detail within food. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. I I really like that. It's a uh, kind of a, a kind of a cool. Like it's always fun when you play with characters who have a a particular attention to detail. Yes, that the average person does not. Um, and especially if you can go as unique as as food and location. That's yeah. I really that's quite cool. Well, I mean, I'm playing in a setting that's a secondary world based on Musketeer era France. I mean, there's just so much material to use. And it's like, yeah, I had to be careful to try not to bring in a lot of the colonial elements because they're not in my world, but there's still so much that's inherently there. And a lot of things that, you know, like going back to what you were talking about using the whole animal, things we don't think about these days or ingredients that in America we really don't encounter like cardoons or uh, coxcombs, things like that, that they used back then. I don't know what either of those things are. Uh, cardoon is a vegetable and coxcombs, literally the comb on the rooster's head. Really? I, I didn't even know that. It wouldn't even have occurred to me that that could be used in cooking. Yeah. And it's, I first realized that a few years ago, there was this uh, show imported from Ireland called Lords and Ladles that was on Netflix for a while. And it was a cooking competition where they had these three premier Irish chefs and they would take them to, to these different Irish estates and they would divvy up the tasks and someone would have to forage and someone would do this, but they always had to cook a recipe that was originally used from like the 16th through 18th century at the estate. And yeah. they had to recreate this, 
massive feast. I'm going back to the feast thing. And it was really interesting because they did have to use a lot of obscure ingredients, even to them as very practiced chefs within Ireland. And it was a fascinating show. And they used, they had to use coxcombs one time. So I was able to work that in, in my sequel book as a epigraph, because I have these little food focused epigraphs throughout the little leaders into each chapter. So yeah, there's one about coxcombs because it's a good period ingredient. 1 size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's a fascinating thing to think about um, because, you know, like like much like it's hard for us to think back on the days when it's hard to get more diverse ingredients, mm -hmm. you know, not even that long ago. If you go back before refrigeration, oh, yeah. you suddenly have an entirely different way of eating and storing food mm -hmm. and trying to use it properly um, and, you know, rotating your pantry and, oh, yeah. and these things that we don't think about in any way, especially kind of where we live. And kind of we have the benefit of like famine has not existed in my lifetime, in my personal experience. Yeah. Like there's if you live in the U.S., you even if you're incredibly poor, it's not that hard to get food. Um, might not be the healthiest food, but you can get food. Yeah. Right. It, it might not be great for you, uh, yeah. but you can get food. And like back in back before refrigeration mm -hmm. you go and and you have to kind of get crazy with the things you put into your food because it has to be either previously stored in some way mm -hmm. um in a way that would probably be sometimes a little you know unsettling to us like, <laughs> like actual like sal salted pork and things like that from what i understand wasn't fantastic it was a little unpleasant um well salt salted everything i mean that's how you preserve butter too is uh you have vat water salt water and butter and it'll you know it'll preserve it for months and months yeah yeah and but just that that thought of those kind of the way things were done is mm -hmm. so incredibly foreign to us yeah. um i i think it's really fun that you are putting a lot of that into the new book like that's like that's a cool way of like I don't even know how to phrase this. Maybe reminding us mm -hmm. of how things kind of used to be. Um, because like, I don't know, I, I've been, I've teased this a lot in my brain the last year or two, especially um, this idea that the way that we live our lives now, um, especially with access to the internet, you know, mm -hmm. access to all of human knowledge at all times, yep. just it changes the way that we do everything. 
and you know compared to people even a hundred years ago it's just absolutely wild it is and it's it's sad when you think even though we have so much knowledge available so much knowledge has been lost yeah too when it comes to things like food preservation and I, I love reading food history books. I geek out over that. I mean, that's one of the best things about researching for these books is, oh, good, I have an excuse to buy all of these books because it's just so much fun. Even just for cheese alone, I have a lot of books on cheese. And there's the way technology has evolved around preserving cheese because, I mean, you're looking at for centuries there, it was a major protein to get you through winter. You had to preserve your cheese and make it last or you had to be able to get your your cheese wheels, your you know, 80, 100 pound cheese wheels off of the Swiss Alps and import them to England, things like that. And it, it's wild when you learn about things like that, like how much of the early American slave trade was about rum going to New England and New England cheeses going back to the Caribbean. And they had to preserve it to make that journey. And it's horrible when you think of how it's involved in all of these things, but throughout history, throughout all these different countries, cheese had to get around and they had to be able to make it last to do it. And it's, I mean, that's why like rubbing cheese wheels with a lard and fat and, you know, the cloth wrapped cheddars, like we see now that England is famous for the technique actually arose out of new England in the early colonial era, because that's, it was warmer there than it was in England. And then the technology actually went back to England. And now it's still one of the major things out of the area that is, the cheddar area, the actual geographic zone. And yeah, cloth wrapped cheddars. I mean, that's something absolutely exquisite, but it has this weird history going back to early America and even the slave trade. And I've never yeah. thought that. Right. Well, and, and when things were invented often blows people's minds, Yeah. you know, like, like, I guess if you had kind of put it to me and said, you know, when was cloth wrapped cheddar invented? I probably would have ballparked, you know, mm-hmm. early Middle Ages, yeah. like just as a guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have had an idea <laughs> because because you think about cheese has been around for, I, I don't know, like since the dawn of human civilization. It's It's been yeah. around for a long time. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that when you have a technological kind of uh, change or leap, uh, you know, when those things happen. It's weird because, I mean, you think of like a waxed wrapped um Gouda, you know, like you, a lot of people are familiar with that, you know, Christmas time, even if that's the only time they have it. I mean, that goes back, I think it was the 16th century. And that's how they realized they could coat it in wax and that would keep out the bugs. And there was even uh, pirates, you know, would be getting these boats and stealing their cheese because it was a commodity. And going through France in the medieval time, a lot of times, you know, if you had a monastery, you know, they, they would get pavement from people in the form of cheese. I mean, it's just integrate into everything. Oh yeah. Well, and just how you feed people is like the logistics of literally everything, Mm -hmm. you know, like, like again, as modern people, we don't really think about it, especially modern Americans, because food is always at the grocery store. Yes. Like it is just not really in our experience with some exceptions, Mm -hmm. um, that there isn't food to be gotten somehow. Yes. And so this idea of like, I mean, you know, like, like voyages, you know, packing for a voyage, you know, literally packing a full wooden ship for a voyage. Much of the logistics of that is the, the water and food for the crew, for the passengers, you know, there's so many things, you know, an army, an army marches on its stomach, right. You know, like, 
like uh, foraging, you know, uh, your uh, supply lines. There's there's all these things that, and it all comes back to food. It's all about, you know, it's all about keeping the machinery, literally what somebody digests, you know, the human machinery. You, you have to have fuel for that. Yeah, and you brought up a great point there when you talk about, you know, the army marching on its stomach because that is so true. And talk about some interesting lost technology when you talk about, you know, they're, you get some unique history books and that shows them digging the trenches and they're literally using like horse troughs to mix dough for bread and things like that. Because I mean, you're having to feed hundreds of people. How are you going to do that? You know, you use what you got and yeah, the foraging, everything like that. It's fascinating. I don't know why this popped into my head. uh, But a few days ago I was thinking about um, kind of uh, these, it's part of, a series of kind of like early America kind of cultural myths. Okay. Um, Paul Bunyan, uh, this popped into my head the other day because I got into a tall tales thing when I was like, re- when I was a little kid, huge into kind of the American tall tales. And uh, the, the whole thing with Paul Bunyan was that these guys would like make pancakes mm. like on, you know, like, uh, house-sized frying pans. I remember they would, that, they, yeah. They would, they would skate with <laughs> butter on the bottoms of their skates to try to, like, you know, grease up the pan. And then they'd make these massive pancakes that would feed either one for Paul or, you know, one for 50 lumberjacks. Yeah. And I don't know, it's it's so funny that that, that little piece of weird Americana you know, has stuck with me as an adult, you know, what, mm-hmm. 30 years after I read about it as a little kid. But it's cool. I mean, I can pick when you're saying that I can picture like a book that I read years ago and seeing an illustration of that, that was full color, probably done like the 1950s, you know, that kind of, you know, wash color. And I can see that in my head. And and honestly, I'm probably picturing the exact same thing right now. Yeah. Because I, I grabbed everything I could get on that. Oh, stuff. I've read a lot of that stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. And, but like, you know, it's, it's the way that food becomes part of, you know, a kind of a cultural myth, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think is kind of, it's kind of sweet, <laughs> kind of lovely. But, but then it's like you go to an area where, you know, a lot of those myths originated and you'll see, you know, the dishes named after them and, you know, you'll see the, the regional mythical merger of that kind of thing too. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, well, there's one that's a little bit more modern that is, um, uh, beef Wellington. I have never had beef Wellington. And for some reason it is like kind of popped up on my radar several times in the last year. And now there's something in my brain that's like, next time I see it prepared somewhere, I am getting beef wellington. I have never had that either. And I looked and I've looked at making it at home and I haven't done it yet, but it it does look really good to me. Well, and it's a bit of a process too. It's very much a process. Yes. And you need a good cut of meat that will be nice and tender in the middle too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's normally done with filet, right? Yeah. Yeah. Filet. And then you do like a mince around it that includes mushroom and a lot of other things. Yeah. And then, you know, you can, there are different ways you can do the, the outer bread too. If you, you know, make it from scratch or, or wrap it in a pastry, you know, whatever. Yeah. 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 The, the pastry, I think that would be really fun. Um, I would love to do it sometime or to just try it even, yeah. you know, but I, I imagine it's one of those things, like you were saying, cause it's an expensive cut of meat. Mm-hmm. I imagine it's one of those things that you kind of have to get it from a nice restaurant. And I think that's perfectly fine. I mean, there are definitely some things where I'm looking through a magazine. I'm like, Oh, that looks really good. I will never make that. But if I saw it on the menu, I would get it. <laughs> 
right? Right. It's like one of those like um well, it's like they say that like to do proper ramen, mm. it's like apparently a like a real chore. Yeah. Like there's tons of different steps to it. And uh which I find kind of interesting because ramen's so kind of it feels very ubiquitous yeah. nowadays. Industrialization um, makes all the difference. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's really, you know, like being able to do things in bulk mm-hmm. um, and make them work in bulk. Um, it's uh, kind of a fascinating process. Like, like I, I'm, I'm fascinated by like the concept of modern food scientists. You know, the people that are yeah. that are dealing with not just making a recipe, but also the logistics of distributing that across, you know, a country or even the world. Like that's, that's actually incredibly fascinating to me. It's really cool. For a project a few years ago, I was reading a lot of books about the 1920s and there's so much food technology that emerged in that period. I mean, it's like you see bird's eye vegetables at the grocery store. Mr. Bird's eye came up with a freezing technique that would preserve, that would flash freeze the vegetables and then allow them to be distributed all over the country. And uh, to me, I thought, I thought bird's eye was, oh, it's just, you know, a bird reference in relation to growing. No, no, no. It's actually a Mr. Bird's eye. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's the the technological leaps. Like again, like we were talking about before, like like things like refrigeration. Mm-hmm. Like, can you imagine trying to like? I mean, the concept would be there for somebody if you were talking to somebody that was you know eight hundred years ago. Like, they would mm-hmm. understand the concept of keeping food cooler. Yes, you know, they would have had root cellars. They, uh, I don't know, would that. At that point of time, people would have been bringing ice down from mountains to preserve. Absolutely. Food. Well, yeah. I mean, um, Napoleon loved ice cream. I mean, you know, you had things like that going on. So, yeah. I mean, absolutely. They they knew that kind of thing, and they yeah. knew that they could preserve ice in um, in wood shavings, things like that. And, and so, so like the concept is there, but like the actual thing of mm-hmm. this is a one hundred percent reliable, keep your food at the exact same temperature year round thing, yeah. like. It's just the head would explode. Well, yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of food would explode, too. I mean, that was a big issue with wines through that period was because most wines would not last more than a few months because it would either turn to vinegar or it would literally explode. I I didn't realize that wine was something that had had a short shelf life. It it did through that period. Yeah. And you're looking at going into the 1700s. That's when uh, individual glass bottles became more of a thing before then. It was, you know, your, your casks and barrels, things like that. But yeah, it was, wine was a very narrow window. It was, it was literally like, you know, you would be lucky if your September harvest lasted till Easter. That'd be like a very aged wine within yeah. standards. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's wild. Just like the, um, it's almost like d- disheartening, right? This idea that, that food, there was most of human history, the vast majority of human history, food just did not last. No, no. You're like. If you had something, you had you had to eat it or sell it to your neighbor, or or it make you sick or kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's kind of a crazy, kind of crazy to think about as as very pampered modern people. Yeah, and you're looking at even a century ago, things like canned goods, uh, ptomaine poisoning uh, from canned goods was a terrible thing and killed a lot of people when they were trying to preserve food, and it turned to poison essentially. Well, yeah, that was that. Um, was it the terror? Is that the TV show I'm thinking of? My wife watched it, I, but and she told me about it, but I didn't. 
It's about the um, about the Arctic explorers whose mm. ships got locked in ice, and then it turned out that their canned food was all driving them insane, or something like that. Oh gosh! Well, there've been a lot of theories like that. There's something about the there's a theory that the Salem witch trials that the witches it, or the you know it was something like the wheat harvest had turned and affected them or things like that. So there are a lot of things like that that people try and understand in hindsight. Well, yeah, and there's there's theories now of you know like that that's what caused lots of mass hysteria. Mm-hmm. in history you know like you know wheat that has a weird you know psychedelic germ in it yeah. you know like little things like that is it's kind of crazy to think that that they really could have like literally steered history in some places and and the people living it had no idea because they were just eating their food you know yeah and while going back to you know t- you're talking about the army running on its stomach i mean that's when you know the foods can definitely you know if the food goes bad if the well is bad then, you know, there goes, everyone's laid low and, you know, can't even make it to a latrine. (laughs) It's just, it's such a crazy thought. Well, um, at the risk of talking about food even more, uh, I, uh, I like to end all of these conversations with a really simple question for each of my guests. And that's, um, what's the last meal you ate that blew your mind? Oh my goodness. That is a tough one. Um, gosh. And I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you as what is the last thing in general? You know, it could be a cheese if you'd like, mm-hmm. or a baked good. Just with the last thing that you ate that just boom. Well, I've got to say, I had a really good salad for lunch that had two different cheeses in it. It had uh, Wisconsin uh, goat Colby Jack, and then along with that was uh, I think it was a Beamster Vlaskas, and I'm probably saying that wrong. Pardon me, uh, but it's a a Gouda. That is a very young Gouda that pretty much was almost like a caramel with with taste. So I had both of those cut up with more of the Colby Jack than the Gouda, because otherwise the Gouda could really overwhelm a salad because it, it, it's such a sweet cheese. And it was really good. I had avocado and bacon on there. And it was, and I use a, I love these uh, sweet kale salad mixes. And so as a really nice poppy seed dressing and just, that combo together was really good. And I have that for my lunch most days and I really enjoy it, but I always try different cheeses in it. Oh, that's great. That's a great way to try cheeses. I, um, uh, we, we've discovered this place that's literally just down the hill from us. It's like a mile away. Um, and it's a local farm that they've got a pretty extensive hydroponic setup hmm. um, where they, and they have a little kiosk out front, like a little enclosed booth where um, you can go and you can get salad like, three days a week oh, nice. um, freshly grown salads. Um, and we do that occasionally. And honestly, I, I love a, like a, a good fresh green salad with like some, with some uh, grilled chicken breast or like some bacon bits or something on there. That oh so man. Good. Yeah. I can, I can Their eat that. Salad is so good. Yeah. 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 And, and it's weird because like we get like, you know, you get turned off from salads because you're like, you you know, like those pre-prepared ones you get at the store and you're kind of like, Mm -hmm. well, this isn't actually good. I'm going to drown it in ranch, (laughs) (laughs) but you can get like a, you can get like a really good fresh salad with good ingredients and like just a tiny bit of vinaigrette or something over Mm -hmm. it. Oh, and it's, it's delicious. Yeah. I was lucky this year. uh, Phoenix area in Arizona has a very small growing season for non-native plants. It's our winter is the, is what is summer to most people. I mean, so I, I put in some uh, romaine, uh, a purple romaine, and then a classic green romaine. And I I lived off that and supplemented that in my other salad mixes for about two months. And it was so good. 
and it just I could tell every bite that had it because it was so fresh and green and crisp. Oh yeah, no, oh, that's fantastic. I love that. I I did uh, for a while. I did a um, little tiny like one of those little personal hydroponics. Oh yeah, and I did salad in it. Um, and I. I, I ended up getting, you know, because I would do it like a fancy lettuce in it. And I ended up getting very discouraged because I would I would get like two good harvests and then it would go bitter. Mm. Oh, yeah. And I could never fix that. Um, and I don't know why, you know, some apparently it's something you can fix and it's a known problem with doing that at home. Um, but I, I, I never had any success and I gave up. But man, those like two harvests I got, yeah. it was always delicious. It was so good. You know, like, oh, clip it right here next to the sink, wash it off, make a salad. Yeah. Yummy. It's a shame that it wouldn't last more than that. Oh, man. How frustrating. I know. It's always so frustrating. And of course, you know, I live in Utah, which is mm-hmm. not as hot as, you know, Phoenix, but, you know, it's still a high desert. And yeah. so you can't grow lettuce outside here. It, it does limit things a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, well. Um, it is fun when you can grow your own food, um, but uh, you know, not, not not required, thankfully, in the part of the world we live in. It's just nice when you can, yeah. Yeah, for sure. That was author Beth Cato. You can find links to Beth's social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Be sure to pre-order Beth's new novel, A Thousand Recipes for Revenge. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jason Nall, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, Taylon, Brian, Will Lebelski, Bradley Thornhill, and Roberto Fontata for their backing on Patreon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.